the results of the vaccine that were good. And people aren't dying when they take the vaccine. Well, who the hell was that guy? I don't know. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. Never is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in rainy Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Burdent Square Radio, and Detour Talk, not to mention your favorite podcast site, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com thank you very much for joining us today as the year grinds towards its close for another thrilling edition of the bradcast delighted to have you here we have been uh, we are catching up with some of our favorite progressive journalists this year as the year winds down yes we are Desi Doyen, of course, you are one of my favorite progressive <laughs> journalists. I just well, want to just want to note that here and now. Uh, also, another one of my favorites, the nation's John Nichols. He will join us momentarily from the great, if uh, if embattled these days, state of Wisconsin. He'll be with us momentarily. I've got a lot to ask him about at year's end, but let me start here as it encapsulates some of the good news this week that we are trying to highlight at the end of what has turned into a bit of a grim ending to the year. Just in time for a very Merry Christmas, unionized Kellogg's workers in four states have approved a a new five-year contract bringing a swift end to one of the longest-running strikes of 2021. Employees in four states voted to accept a tentative agreement, according to company and union representatives. The five-year contract includes across-the-board wage increases and cost-of-living adjustments, as well as expanded health care and retirement benefits. Over the course of the 11-week strike... There had been multiple entreaties from policymakers to return to the bargaining table, as well as criticism from President Biden and other prominent lawmakers after Kellogg said that it would find permanent replacements, yes, scab workers, for the 1,400 cereal plant workers in Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania and Tennessee who went on strike way back in early October. 
union members will return to work on the Monday after Christmas. Anthony Shelton, president of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers International Union, lauded the strikers who, quote, courageously stood their ground and sacrificed so much in order to achieve a fair contract. He emphasized that the deal, quote, does not include any concessions. Well, good for them. Two scoops. Michigan State Rep Jim Hodsma, uh, a Democrat, uh, a labor relations and workers compensation lawyer himself, called the outcome a significant victory for the labor movement. This shows the continued evolving muscularity of organized labor, said Hadsma. The fact that a union was able to negotiate any concessions at all from a multinational corporation, according to Washington Post, could serve as a powerful signal to other unions, possibly encouraging workers elsewhere to be more assertive. Said Hadsma, it will be interesting to see what it does in terms of provoking more employees to think about the benefits that exist by relation of belonging to a union and what will happen at other unions. The union behind the Kellogg's drive has been a force in several large strikes recently, including a 19-day walkout at a Kansas Frito-Lay plant that ended in a contract guaranteeing one day off per week, as well as wage increases. It was also involved in a weeks-long walkout at Nabisco that concluded in late September. Experts say the wave of labor, labor activism playing out across the country this year comes at a unique economic moment in which healthy corporate profits, supply chain bottlenecks, and a shortage of blue-collar workers has strengthened the hand of organized labor. Kellogg's sales grew 5.6% in the most recent quarter compared with the same period last year, while profits shot up more than 9%. Seems like the employees should get some of that, doesn't it? Well, maybe now they will. The company had previously said it had no choice but to bring in new hires, yes, scabs, to cover for those on strike. But days later, the White House put out a statement criticizing the company for bringing, quote, threats and intimidation against its unionized workers. President Biden, who has been very supportive of labor unions, wrote in the statement, quote, permanently replacing striking workers is an existential attack on the union and its members' jobs and livelihoods. Senator Bernie Sanders also denounced the idea of replacing workers last week, telling The Post, quote, During the early parts of the pandemic, these people were considered to be heroes and heroines, which in fact they are. But now, according to Kellogg's, they are simply disposable workers. To just replace them, Sanders said, is extraordinarily ugly. Trevor Bittleman, president of the union's Battle Creek chapter, said workers had worried they might permanently lose their jobs, but support from high-profile politicians solidified members in their decision to push for a new contract. In Michigan, where Kellogg's is headquartered, the state's Democratic attorney general and a handful of Democratic state lawmakers have walked the picket line in support of workers, as did Bernie Sanders. U.S. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, who visited with union members in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in late October expressed support for workers and urged them to resolve their differences with the company. Joining us now to discuss this 
what I think is a very clear win for American workers and much more at year's end is our old friend and national treasure to American progressive journalism. John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation, contributing writer for The Progressive and associate editor of Madison, Wisconsin's Capital Times in his beloved home state. He's also the author of and co-author of many books on progressive politics, including his latest Soon to be published, I believe, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis. Accountability? What's that? Hey, John Nichols, welcome back to the broadcast, amigo. It's great to be with you, my friend. And, and, you know, we will, over the next year, with luck, teach people the meaning of the term accountability. Accountability. didn't get much traction in 2021. Yeah, not not ringing any bells. We'll we'll nope. try to figure it out next year. I got a lot to talk to you uh, talk to you about today, John, uh, on a range of disparate, if somewhat related, topics as uh, uh, as 2021 ends and 2022 begins. That I want to try to fly through with you. But as a favorite son of Wisconsin arguably the birthplace of the American labor union movement. I wanted to start with the Kellogg story and and labor overall in 2021 to get your thoughts on what happened here. In one sense, it seems, if not ironic, then somewhat counterintuitive that 2021 would have been such a strong year for labor, you know, given that unemployment absolutely skyrocketed for the first year or so of the pandemic in 2020 as businesses were closed and so forth. What happened here that so radically reversed the outlook and the power of labor and labor unions from 2020 to 2021, as you see it? Yeah, well, COVID happened, and and that's the, the bottom line explanation. You are right that when it first hit, uh, when you had a lot of the lockdowns, you had a, a situation where their unemployment did go up very mm-hmm. quickly. Yeah. But then it went down very quickly uh, because of a couple of things that happened, which were, you know, not, I wouldn't say pro-worker, but they at least opened up some, some avenues. Mm-hmm. First off, people figured out they could work from home, mm-hmm. and a lot of them liked it, and that created a situation where a lot of folks decided that they wouldn't go back to jobs they didn't like. And so we have had what's sometimes referred to as the great resignation. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks have left the workforce, either because they retired early, uh, because they got sick and they needed to take care of themselves, or um, because they just decided to step back and they're looking around. Maybe they'll, you know, jump back in, but maybe not. End result is that uh, hiring around the country is, you know, it's tough. Corporations are having a hard time filling jobs. Mm -hmm. And as a result, uh, this is a a natural reality. When you have a tough time filling jobs, workers have an an ability to push back, to say, hey, you know, you want to keep me here? You have to treat me well. And the companies, in some cases, don't even know how to do that. I mean, (laughs) it's it's been sort of surreal. Uh, We've had some of these strikes, the strike at John Deere by the Mm -hmm. UAW members, the strike at Kellogg's by Bakery Confectionery, mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of other strikes across the country. And what's happened again and again is that initially the company uh, kind of bargains in the old-fashioned way. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, you guys are on strike. Uh, we're going to be tough with you. We're not going to give you more than we want to give you, and, and if you push back on us, we're going to threaten to permanently replace you. All the, all the old tricks. Well, the workers, looking at the reality of the situation, took a gamble. And said, you can't, you're 
could be able to permanently replace them uh, because our, we're skilled at what we do, mm-hmm. and you're just not going to be able to find people to do that. And also, uh, it's just, you know, it's not, it's not going to work in this situation, the I, broader sense of supply chain challenges where they really do have to kind of keep things going. I thought, the end result is the companies, you know, blinked. Uh, yeah, and blinked. I thought it was interesting uh, how many have been referring to uh, the support that they got from uh, policymakers, from Joe Biden, from Bernie Sanders, but from the labor secretary, from others, even the uh, the governor, the Republican governor of uh, of Nebraska um, was actually supportive of the workers. It's interesting what happens when these uh, lawmakers speak out loudly and proudly uh, in support of labor. John, how would the... Um, how would the PRO Act or the uh, Protect the Right to Organize Act, uh, which, of course, is being held up in the Senate behind a GOP filibuster, essentially, because Republicans hate workers in general. Uh, how would the PRO Act have helped the Kellogg's workers and the and the Amazon workers in Bessemer, Alabama, who, after initially supporting unionization, they recently earlier in the year voted against it by a two to one margin, even though the National Labor Relations Board has now ordered a revote there after finding that Amazon broke the rules during that first election. But how would the uh, PRO Act be be key to moving labor forward? The PRO Act is key across the board because the PRO Act takes uh, workers to a situation that is somewhat similar to where they were in the 30s and the 40s. Not, not exactly. I mean, times have changed. Things are more complex in a lot of ways. But you know, after World War II, they passed the Taft-Hartley Law. The mm-hmm. Taft-Hartley Law uh, really did weaken the hand of unions in a lot of places. Since then, there have been a lot of assaults on union rights in the courts, in the states with right-to-work laws. What the PRO Act does is uh, kind of get workers back on an even playing field. And I could give you very quick examples of where it would help. Mm-hmm. With the Kellogg's workers, PRO Act says you can't do permanent replacements. you got to bargain. you got to negotiate. And so right off the bat, Kellogg's workers would have come out ahead. Mm-hmm. With the Amazon workers, uh, the PRO Act bars a lot of the intimidation tactics mm-hmm. that corporations do to try and prevent unions from mm-hmm. uh, getting traction. And here's one of the best ones. With the Starbucks workers up in Buffalo who've just organized and, and won uh, representation rights in at least one of the coffee houses up mm-hmm. there, maybe more, mm-hmm. um, they now are in a very difficult situation of having to bargain their first contract. So here you got a, a couple dozen workers against Starbucks, right? right? This massive entity that doesn't want unions. Well, under the PRO Act, uh, a company could not uh, just drag out the negotiations for that first contract and make it essentially impossible. Mm -hmm. After a certain amount of time, you got to go to mediation. Mm. And so effectively, those those Starbucks workers could get a contract. So you pass the PRO Act, every major strike or every major labor action that we're talking about Mm -hmm. uh, would be made easier and better, and then you just expand that exponentially across the country. Of course, passing the PRO Act is no easy feat. As I said, there's a lot of uh, Republicans who oppose labor, although they pretend, you know, that they're, they're for the working man, they're for the forgotten working class. Are there, are, do you know, are there any Republicans who have uh, spoken out in favor of the PRO Act at, at this point, even someone like Rand Paul, who pretends to be in favor of workers? No, I've been working on that one for a while. I haven't had any success with Rand yet. <laughs> okay. um, you know, look, uh, most of your Republicans who talk a lot about freedom uh-huh. and, and all that, of course, it's, it's just freedom for multinational corporations, right. not, for, not for workers. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, for instance, they 
are even willing to stomp on the free speech rights of workers because, of course, the Taft-Hartley law uh, bars secondary boycotts. So if you want to, as a worker, support your fellow workers when they're on strike, mm-hmm. you, know, you can't do it, mm-hmm. right? You're limited in what you can do in your workplace. Yep. And so there's a lot of basic free speech, basic liberty issues that Republicans should be on board for, but, of course, they're hypocrites. So um, are there some Republicans who are supportive? Yes, there are. They tend to be from the Northeast, from Pennsylvania, uh, New York State, and they tend to be those sort of you know, kind of classic. They're very conservative Republicans, mm-hmm. not to make them out into great heroes, but they're sort of classic uh, representatives of areas that have, frankly, a lot of construction workers, mm-hmm. a lot of union members. And so while they may vote wrong on a lot of stuff, they occasionally will cross over and vote right. So all we have to do is come up with ten of them. Joking. Yeah, no, no, these are in the House. Uh, in oh, the in the Senate. House. Oh, in the Senate? Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, the only way you're going to do this in the Senate, I mean, it's possible you could get Lisa Murkowski across because Alaska uh-huh. is a very pro-labor state. Um, but it, realistically, in the Senate, the only way to do this is to do a carve-out from the filibuster, which, uh, you know, if they did it, uh, then the question is whether Joe Manchin mm-hmm. and Kirsten Sinema, both of whom were elected with strong labor support, yeah. would go along with it. I think Manchin would... Cinema appears to be the real problem on this one because she's a doesn't seem all that sympathetic to labor, and b um, she's carved out a position for herself as the great supporter of the filibuster. Well, as long as you uh, raised the M word, Joe Manchin, <laughs> uh, you know I'm almost tired of talking about it at this point. But let's uh, get your thoughts on this, John Nichols, very quickly. What 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 do you see as the real story behind? Joe Manchin's stunning reversal and his his broken promise to support Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda? I don't think it was a stunning reversal at all. I think it's where he's been from from back in the summer. He has played along with this thing all the way through. He's gotten everything he's asked for and more. He cut the the plan in half, Mm -hmm. uh, jettisoned key components of it. But at the end of the day, I think what somebody would have predicted back in July remains true. Joe Manchin is not the senator from West Virginia. He is the senator from the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. This is a climate protection measure as well as a social welfare measure, and yep. he just wasn't going to back this. Yeah, and I had a feeling when he said, oh, I want these programs uh, not not uh, you know extended for one year or five years. I want them permanently extended or extended out through 10 years. Well, the only way you could do that is if you you know moved about half of the money in that uh, $2 trillion bill over to extend those programs. And a nice, easy way to do it is just remove all of the, what is it, $555 billion yeah. uh, that's set, uh, set for climate and just move it over to the other programs. No problem. And I won't be surprised if that actually comes out as a uh, a pitch after the new year from from Manchin. We'll see. Now, John, I've, I've seen uh, some, uh, including progressive journalists and pundits, uh, friends of ours, David Day and uh, uh, Heather Digby Parton, etc., cite what happened here as uh, due to really an overreach by progressives in Congress, trying to do too much in what was always, as they suggest now, not only a risky gambit, but one that you know, uh, they should have known was unlikely to ultimately succeed. They have uh, they, they argue the Democrats should have selected just a few narrow but important priorities that were easy to understand for the American people that had broad popular support, which could be passed in shorter order and to at least begin establishing the idea once again that, yes, government actually can 
make the lives of Americans better. Now, I'm sort of with the go for broke idea still myself, but I'm wondering how you see that strategy in in hindsight now, if in fact we are in hindsight on this. I'm not sure we're in hindsight. I me, think yeah, me neither. Quite <laughs> honestly, I think that, that uh, there's going to be another iteration of Build Back Better. Mm-hmm. I also think that, you know, what some people are proposing, oh, you know, do, do it piecemeal, do bits and pieces, pass the popular things. Yeah, I mean, I think some of that will happen early in 2022. It's very possible. The problem is that uh, to get progress in this country at this time, mm-hmm. you have to take popular programs and put them together with necessary programs, right? You can't de-link them if you're going to get the necessary things across the line, and that's some of the climate stuff. That's also, you know, just some of the programs in here that that don't mm-hmm. necessarily have everybody mm-hmm. bought into it, but they are really needed. Mm-hmm. And so that's the that's the logic to build back better. You take your it's like any store that puts on the front, you know, we're going to sell you a uh, an Apple phone for less than any place else mm-hmm. that gets you in the door, and then they hope to sell you some other stuff as well. And and here. It's, you take the popular stuff, you put it with the rest of the stuff, you get a big package. Now, um, that's number one. Number two, remember, this has got to be done through reconciliation, not through, uh, you know, getting getting just a 50-50 vote in right. a regular standard. So that whole notion that you could have done pieces of this in a Republican-controlled Senate without overdoing, overturning the filibuster, it's not true. Because you only have one shot, with essentially, yeah. with the reconciliation. You can't do a whole bunch of smaller bills at uh, a majority vote of 50. You'd have That's to get right. 60 You might have got one or two of them, but yeah. then they, you'd, you'd you know, kind of wind out the reconciliation, and the parliamentarian might block you on something. But here's the final thing as well. I think the storyline here is a totally different one. I, I think it's just malpractice. I, I think that the... Uh, Biden administration, Democratic leaders in the House and Senate, uh, got a plan in July, and they didn't go sell it. They they thought mm. that they could, you know, negotiate this in the back room because Joe Biden is a man of the Senate. And, uh, you know, 36 years in the Senate, eight years as vice president. He just he thinks he can do this, and I respect that that sentiment. He could certainly try it for a couple weeks. Um, Schumer very similar, and so they they never really fought for this in the way that they needed to fight for it. And the way you need to fight for it is to a Make it, you know, just central to what you're doing nationally. Talk about it all the time. Have the president, members of the cabinet, out on a regular basis, pushing every element of it, mm. popularizing it. And then, frankly, you have to go into West Virginia and Arizona, not with a direct attack on Mansion and Cinema initially, but with an understanding that you're going in there, you know, to try and convince people to come across the line, right? You're going to get, you're going to build a level of support that is sufficient, that, um, But how do you go into West Virginia, into Joe Manchin country, and pitch this thing that Joe Manchin is still not on board with? I mean, this guy, you know, reportedly, um, if you uh, believe Steve Clemens reporting over at the Hill, you know, he pulled his support from this essentially because he said that the White House mentioned him in a uh, in a in a statement in a press release, which, by the way, he was lauding him. He said, we're making good progress with Joe Manchin. But just the mention of them, at oh. least according to Manchin, is why he pulled his support, which, you know, is nonsense. But he would have used that had you gone into West Virginia. I mean, he, he, he flipped his lid when Bernie Sanders wrote a, an op-ed in a West Virginia paper about all of this. So here's a little, here's a little uh, newsflash for you. Mm-hmm. If you can make Joe Manchin flip his lid, mm-hmm. maybe you're kind of getting close to where you need to be. 
right? Um, Because here's the bottom line. Yeah. If we knew from the start that Joe Manchin wasn't going to move on this thing, right, that he was just playing people. Yeah. And frankly played him in a way that, that probably lost Virginia for the Democratic Party, right? So he's playing folks and not not going to do it. Uh, then why not call his bluff early on, right? Uh, and how do you call his bluff early on? Very simple. Why not go into his state and build a mass movement on behalf of this program? Not attacking him. Uh-huh. Not personally attacking him, but yep. going in and just, you know, get people to say, yeah, I would like dental care. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, I would like free community college. You, you, there's nothing in this plan that isn't super popular in I, West Virginia. I hear you, John, but I also hear the idea that, you know, I also hear Mitch McConnell saying, hey, come on over to us, Joe Manchin, and yep. in about 30 seconds, Joe Manchin is able to return control of the U.S. Senate to Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. That is a very dangerous game. Of course it's dangerous, and I, that's why I'm saying, you know, you don't, you know, part of this is to make <laughs> Manchin the demon initially, right? right? Part of it is to build that, you know, build the base. Okay. Do this campaign for, this is, I'm talking about a positive uh-huh. initiative here. I'm talking about saying, uh, look, we have a plan yeah. to get people dental care, vision care, hearing care, if you're, if you're older, to get you free community college, yep. to end child poverty, and uh, to clean up rivers and streams and take care of minors in West Virginia. I know. I Listen, John, I want to agree with you. And, no, it, and it is not that I don't, in fact. I, I sort of do. But at the same time, it was a positive thing that the White House actually said about Joe Manchin, which led him to leaving this thing. So it's, He was going to do that anyway. Okay, fair enough. Why not, why not fight for what, you're, what you want yeah. to get passed? And then... If he does it early, well, then you know you're not going to waste the fall on it in yeah. the winter. Yeah. Um, and and on the other hand, if you do it right with strategy, and, and you know, Brad, these people spend hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars to get elected and to promote their agendas. You'd think they might have a couple of people who knew how to sell ideas that Americans <laughs> actually want yeah. to Americans. Yeah. Uh, John does uh, very quickly because I, I still got a lot I want to get to you with. D- does all of this, uh, you know, what happened with Manchin, in some way maybe make the possibility of his willingness to reform the filibuster to allow passage of, uh, well, critical federal voting rights and election protection legislation at the very least? Does does any of this make it any more, uh, any more or less likely to happen as you see it? Well, you know, that's the interesting thing. Uh, clearly, Manchin's still talking to people. I interviewed uh, Pramila Jayapal mm-hmm. on uh, Tuesday, mm-hmm. and she, she got a call. She said Manchin wasn't a man of his word on Sunday. And on Monday, he called her and wanted to talk about it. She says, oh, I don't, mean, you know, I, I don't want you looking at me that way or whatever. I mean, she didn't reveal every aspect of the conversation. Mm-hmm. But he reached out. And so there's a lot of evidence that Manchin still, for whatever reason, wants to play this game. Yeah. And if that's the case, uh, then you know, let's let's go for it, right? Let's find our way to let's find our way to have that that communication. Get, get something out of them, yeah. Right, uh, and I, and I yeah. think you're I think you're right. And uh, Reverend Barber, uh, who's been very active in, in West Virginia, has said you know that that's the thing. You, you want build back better, but you also want this voting rights stuff too. Right, and, and he might feel really bad. Yeah, he might feel bad enough uh, in some sense about killing Build Back Better to say, well, see, I'm not a bad guy. Let's uh, put voting rights and, through. And you want to know the weirdest thing? Yeah. That progressives who are hating on Manchin today, yeah. uh, 
it, let me just tell you, I'll use a, one name and it'll sum it up, Liz Cheney. Yeah, no. You'd be amazed how forgiving progressives are when you come yeah. to do something that they like. Yeah, no kidding. All right, very quickly, uh, as we're speaking of the working class earlier and labor, you you sent me a fascinating piece, John, that I, I believe will be running at the nation uh, as of uh, Christmas Eve That about, quote, the headline, that time the FBI scrutinized It's a Wonderful Life, for communist messaging. Now, it's a fascinating piece, even if I almost didn't want to talk to you about it at all, because, John, my head almost exploded when I read the first part of this piece, because it starts with a scene at the 2020 Republican convention in which a speaker compares Donald Trump to, of all people, George Bailey. That's right. Not not to Mr. <laughs> Potter, but to George Bailey. So uh, let me just, uh, since I have some other things I want to ask you about, let me at least let you give a pitch for this. Uh, you got a quick tease for us because it's a really interesting piece. Uh, a quick tease on that that well that maybe won't make my head explode. No, it's going to make your head explode. During uh, the 1950s, uh-huh. the, uh, the FBI sent agents out to watch movies, which is kind of a cool job. Yeah, and they also had you know informants, uh, people like Onrond and others mm-hmm. who were working in Hollywood spreading the word about bad movies. And they concluded, at least this, this age, special agent that watched It's a Wonderful Life, concluded that it did, in fact, uh, adopt, you know, kind of communist messaging because <laughs> it made Mr. Potter look bad. <laughs> and it actually had suggestions in the memo to J. Edgar Hoover uh-huh. about how they could have made it better just by having Mr. by explaining that Mr. Potter wasn't really a bad guy. He was just following federal banking. Uh, yes. And never mind the fact that George Bailey is himself a banker. <laughs> uh, so, Mary. It's really small versus big. And that's what the, it, you really get a signal. And the reason I wrote the piece was that so often our, and the FBI in this case, and a lot of our powerful folks, when they go after the communists, or they go after the left, or they go after what they see as mm-hmm. something dangerous, it's really on behalf of the huge multinational corporations. Not against the left or against communists. Mm-hmm. It's against small business and you know working yep. class folks. Yep. Well, Merry Christmas, Bedford Falls. All right, John, let's uh, wrap up here with your new book, uh, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, Accountability for Those Who Caused the Crisis, which I, I don't think it's out. Is, is it out just yet? Uh, no, it comes out at the end of Jan- in January. Okay, yeah. in January. Uh, your uh, publisher, Random House's webpage, describes it as a furious denunciation of America's coronavirus criminals. What can you tell us about the new book, and, and who are these coronavirus criminals uh, of whom you speak and identify in the book, John? Yeah, well, there's, there's 18 of them. I took, a, I took my model, uh, the book Guilty Men, which was written by Michael Foote and others at the start of World War II, mm-hmm. where they went back and looked at the people who were appeasers mm-hmm. in England and, you know, just read their record. And uh, it was a very powerful influence, and I'm hoping to have some influence with this as well. My basic argument is that in this United States at this point, we have a politics of impunity. You can do almost anything and get away with it. And it just strikes me that, that the actions of Donald Trump, members of his cabinet, mm-hmm. uh, pharmaceutical companies, governors uh, like DeSantis and Christy Nome, mm-hmm. judges on state Supreme Courts who threw out mask orders and vaccine uh, orders and things of that nature, uh, that, that these folks should be held to account. If you aren't held to account for creating a situation where you, in Trump's case, willingly lied to the American people about mm-hmm. a pandemic, 
If you can't be held to account for that, then it will happen again. That's the bottom line. And what we're looking at right now is a politics developing in America where uh, I think because the Biden administration does hasn't done enough to hold people to account, mm-hmm. uh, now the blame just kind of leads on into the next administration rather than pointing a finger at those who actually did deliberately bad things. Although there is a House Select Committee that is looking at the coronavirus uh, crisis that does seem to be sort of upping their game, sort of learning a little bit from what they're seeing at the... Uh, the House Select Committee on January 6th. I don't know. Maybe they'll come out with some, uh, what, I, what I would like to see is some criminal referrals. Uh, but, John, we spoke a, a month or two ago on this show with our friend and, and colleague Tom Hartman about his case that he has been making that Donald Trump should be held criminally accountable for essentially mass Homicide. I don't know if you've uh, seen Tom's specific mm-hmm. case on this or not. Uh, you know, he's saying there should be criminal accountability for killing as many as 300,000 people that, you know, according to they Trump's own task force, yeah, Deborah Burke did not need yep. to die. Is this a case of, of, of criminal negligence here? Would you like to see some sort of uh, accountability along those lines? I'm going to say across the board accountability. I want to see. Uh, congressional action. Mm-hmm. I want to see criminal action. I want to see civil action. Wherever, whatever avenue works to to send a signal that you cannot do this. And I, keep, I argue strongly in the book. This isn't about the individuals. You may hate Donald Trump. You may like him. Whatever. This isn't about the individuals. This is about the politics of impunity. If someone who is in a position of authority, like Elaine Chao, mm-hmm. who is the Secretary of Transportation, mm-hmm. and refused for a year to issue uh, mass mandates on, on public transit, public mm-hmm. transportation. Mm-hmm. I, I, in every chapter in the book, I find individuals who died, and then I track through the mm. cabinet members, the judges, the, the CEOs, whoever, who could have taken actions that would have let that person live. Wow, nice. Uh, the, uh, your publisher, Random House, notes that... Uh, in the book, you call uh, 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 you close with a with a call for a version of the Pecora Commission. Yep. Is that Pecora. how you say? Yeah. They took aim at what FDR called the speculation, reckless banking, class antagonism, and profiteering that stoked the Great Depression, saying that there must be accountability. Said FDR. Did did that commission's mandate call for some sort of criminal accountability oh, yeah. here? Or was it largely oh, okay. a public exposure thing for those who profiteered? It was public exposure that then led to action. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pecora was actually a former mafia uh, prosecutor. I mean, mm-hmm. prosecuted the mob. Mm-hmm. And so he was very well prepared to deal with bankers. And, and the end result was, you know, it, it, it's a loss to history. Thousands of, thousands of wrongdoers were, were jailed or were prosecuted. People got you know, major fines. You know, big bankers yeah. to, had to pay huge fines. Uh, not not the little, you know, like, oh, what do I have in spare change? But I mean, real accountability. People lost jobs because of what was exposed by the Pecora Commission. And so I would like to see a, a similar reality. But again, you know, Brad, this is an important thing to remember. This isn't just about picking on the individual. Yeah. This is about setting down a standard yeah. so that in the future, and we'll have more pandemics, yep. in the future, uh, politicians, bankers, CEOs think twice before they make decisions uh, based on their bottom line rather than public health and, and survival of humanity.
I could not agree with you more, John Nichols, and and hopefully we'll have you back to talk about the new book once it's actually out. Hopefully you can pre-order it. Also didn't get to talk to you about your uh, annual Most Valuable Progressives list, which I think will be coming out uh, by uh, year's end or, or after the new year. Uh, year's end, yeah. The year's end that we always uh, look forward to. Maybe we'll talk about that. Before I let you go, John, I noticed that the, the cover for your new book, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers, has three photos. One of Donald Trump, one of his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, I believe that is, both of which, you know, immediately made sense to me. And then you had a third one that appears to be, is that Jeff Bezos on the cover? Yeah, we're going to see how well we do on Amazon. Uh, That's what I was wondering. Is it on well, sale at Amazon? I I hope so. I hope uh, <laughs> they they paper you know free distribution of uh, of all ideas. But uh, look look you couldn't you couldn't ignore Bezos. The actions that Amazon took uh, as regards workers in their warehouses in yep. the early stages uh, and and ongoing mm. something that had to be written about. And also you know I'd, I'd also want to write about the incredible maldistribution of wealth. Uh, extending from the pandemic, and Bezos is a pretty good example of that, although I could have also chosen Time Magazine cover boy, Elon Musk. Elon Musk, yeah. Attaboy, keep up the good work, my friend. John Nichols, Washington correspondent for The Nation. Uh, You can find him, uh, of course, at thenation.com, where you'll find his wonderful life piece and soon his most valuable progressives piece. I'm sure I will be listed. The Brad blog and Bradcast will be there this year, finally, I'm sure. No, we're, we're actually going to dedicate the whole list to you next year. I, so think, I had to hope, you uh, know. I think that's the right thing to do, John. Absolutely. You can also find him on the Twitters at Nichols Uprising. John Nichols, uh, thank you for all you do. Thank you for all you've done for us over this past year. We look forward to the next year, and I uh, hope you have a happy, healthy, and uh, safe uh, holiday, my friend. I wish you all the same, and I love what you do with this show. Keep on strong, and and we'll do it some more in 2022. Thank you, brother. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break here. Okay. After which, I will return to reach out with some good tidings for, uh, yes, some Republicans (laughs) in the spirit of the season. So, uh, you know, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year and all of that. That is straight ahead, as well as Desi Doyen's Green News Report thereafter. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. So this is Christmas, and what have you done? Another year over, and you won't just be gone. And so this is Christmas. Too. 
sure there will be no fear. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Since it is holiday time and the year is wrapping up, thankfully, and since it's so important that we somehow, somehow find a way to unbreak this nation and this world in in the year and the years ahead, allow me to uh, give begrudging credit and it's very begrudging, Desi Doyen. <laughs> I know. Uh, begrudging I know. credit to two different Republicans today for sort of, uh, kind of, almost, at least saying the right things. Yes, this is how low the bar has become. But we have got to start somewhere. So, first, uh, from Politico today, Republican Congressman Tom Rice, according to Politico, now says he regrets his vote against certifying two states' electoral votes for President Joe Biden in the hours after the January 6th Capitol attack. Now, I don't want to give him too much credit here, frankly, because as uh, as Politico notes, the South Carolinian says he still believes there was, quote, re- real issues with the election, <laughs> which is an evidence-free lie. However, among the 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach then President Donald Trump over the insurrection, which Rice did, uh, he's the only one who also voted for certification challenges to Biden's win on January 6th. And now he says he regrets casting those votes, which in this Republican Party is absolutely not an easy thing to do. So I uh, I kind of want to help provide an off ramp to folks like Rice to do the right thing. Even if they don't completely do the right thing, uh, at least at first, I think it's important to to give space to give that off ramp for these these folks. Yeah, I mean, otherwise, how will we ever get back to being less broken as a nation than we are? Correct. Rice's uh, uh, contrition here comes from Trump's failure to intervene when a mob of his own supporters stormed the Capitol in order to try to stop the certification. Quote, in retrospect, I should have voted to certify, Rice told Politico, because President Trump was responsible for the attack on the Capitol. And good for him for saying as much. It might be nice if Attorney General Merrick Garland noticed the same thing. But I digress, digress for the moment. Uh, As as Rice told Politico in the wee hours of that disgraceful night while waiting for the capital of our great country to be secured, I knew I should vote to certify. But because I had made a public announcement of my intent to object, I did not want to go back on my word. So, yeah, I regret my vote to object, he said. So he didn't want to go back on his public word, but he was willing to violate his oath to the Constitution for a little bit there. Once again, if you're going to nitpick this sort of thing, (laughs) Desi Doyen, he did sort of, kind of, almost the right thing. Can't you leave it at that? All right. It's Christmas. Off ramp back to sanity. Yes. Okay. Rice argued the outgoing president watched, quote, with pride from the safety of the White House and, quote, did nothing to stop it. As Capitol Police were beaten for hours, the House was, quote, sacked and defaced and Vice President Mike Pence and his family fled for their lives. The result, Rice noted, was five dead and hundreds injured. Quote, there was a coward in that equation, Rice said, but it was not Mike Pence. 
The majority of Rice's House Republican colleagues voted not to certify Biden's win after the bloody Capitol siege. And while Rice is the first to say he regrets that vote, it's unlikely that a wave of other GOP lawmakers will follow Rice in acknowledging their regret. Rather, many are still trumpeting Trump's baseless claims of a stolen election. So, yeah, in that environment... And in this holiday season, I want to give Rice some credit here, at least. Rice's impeachment vote has led him to be cast as a centrist. His record, however, tells otherwise. He touts how he voted with Trump 94 percent of the time. He argues that supporting impeachment was the conservative thing to do. And he is right. You'll recall, I'm sure some of you are old enough to remember when so-called conservatives used to pretend to support law and order and, you know, self-responsibility. Those were the days. Uh, Rice says that is the message that he's trying to impress upon voters as he seeks re-election in a red state where Trump still holds a lot of influence, South Carolina. So good for him. And yes, I actually do mean that. Uh, The other kudos I'm about to give to a Republican at year's end in one sense is much more difficult. On the other hand, if it saves even one life of, of any political persuasion, I'm happy to begrudgingly do it. Former President Donald Trump pushed back against doubts about the efficacy of the COVID-19 vaccines during an interview with right-wing media personality Candace Owens. Uh, This was released yesterday. Uh, Don't worry, we're not going to play the audio because I'm not that cruel at Christmas. Uh, Despite (laughs) being vaccinated himself, which he did in secret, by the way, because, yes, he is a coward, as Rice uh, indicated there. Uh, Trump, according to Axios, has sometimes given mixed signals to his supporters on whether they should take the shot. Trump supporting communities, meanwhile, have seen markedly lower vaccination rates and way, way higher hospitalization and death rates in the bargain. The former president was somewhat clearer about the benefits of vaccination earlier in the week when he admitted during an interview with Bill O'Reilly that he received a booster shot. He also got booed in response to that by his own supporters. But while Trump told Owens he opposes mandates, he touted the benefits of the shot. He called it, quote, one of the greatest achievements of mankind. Now, be prepared to be appalled by this quote, but again, if it ends up saving one life, I'm okay sharing it on our public airwaves as my civic duty. Trump said, quote, I came up with three vaccines. All are very, very good. I came up with three of them in less than nine months. Uh, The deplorable Owens responded, and yet more people have died under COVID this year, by the way, under Joe Biden than under you. And more people took the vaccine this year. So people are questioning how and Trump cuts her off to say, oh, no, the vaccine worked. But some people aren't taking it. The ones that get very sick and go to the hospital are the ones that don't take the vaccine. He then added, but it's still their choice, and if you take the vaccine, you're protected. Look, the results of the vaccine are very good, he said, and if you do get it, uh, it's a very minor form. People aren't dying when they take the vaccine, said Donald Trump. All right, so there you go. Kudos. Yes, I'm saying it. Kudos to Donald Trump for saying that. And if it saves some lives, 
I don't mind uh, sharing it here because I am a swell fellow, <laughs> says me. Desi Doyen and the Green News Report is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. You know, it's almost as if the fossil fuel industry saw the year winding down and said, we have to get in one more disaster before 2021 is over. Oh, gosh, uh, yes. This disaster, uh, well, we weren't able to figure it out or fit it into our latest Green News report coming up momentarily, but Exxon Mobil emergency response teams say they have extinguished a fire at the Baytown Refinery in Baytown, Texas, outside of Houston, The company said in a statement on social media that around 1 a.m. a fire occurred at our our facility. Emergency vehicles and smoke may be noticeable to the community. Maybe. (laughs) The cause of the incident uh, has not yet been determined. According to ExxonMobil, they say our first priority is people in the community and in our facilities. And if... If ExxonMobil, uh, you know, cares about anything, it's <laughs> it's the people in their communities. The company said there has been no adverse air quality monitoring impacts to the community. I hope they're right. I don't know why we wouldn't trust them. As they seem to be uh, downplaying the incident, authorities in Texas, on the other hand, said that they were investigating a, quote, major industrial accident. At the company's plant on Thursday morning, initial reports indicated some type of explosion occurred inside. Houston County Sheriff Ed Gonzalez said four people were injured, three taken from the scene by life flight, and one by ambulance. Videos posted on social media show dense smoke rising from the facility, or as Exxon says, some smoke may be noticeable. A little. Uh, Kendall Merritt, a guy who lives uh, nearby, told ABC News, quote, My mom lives right behind the plant, and around 1 a.m. I heard a loud boom and the house shaking. The sound was as if someone had slammed a door right in my ear. So uh, the Baytown uh, complex covers about 3,400 acres. It produces more than half a million barrels of crude each day. So that will not help gas prices. I blame Joe Biden. Sheriff Gonzalez says there wasn't an order for nearby residents to evacuate or shelter in place as of this morning because, you know, it's Texas and they're not going to let a few deadly toxic fumes ruin Christmas, Desi Doyen. (laughs) Heaven forbid. Here to ruin Christmas, however, is Desi Doyen and her latest Green News Report. Natural disasters have cost the country nearly $100 billion this year alone. 2021 brought a wave of deadly and expensive extreme weather disasters in the U.S., but also some very good news. Big battery storage is soaring on the U.S. electric grid. Plus, more than half of the children in America who are under the age of six are at risk of lead exposure. 
Biden administration mobilizes to rid the nation of millions of lead pipes. All of that long overdue year-ending news straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It's infrastructure season. (laughs) Will Santa bring us the steel I-beams we asked for from China? (laughs) Is that him on the roof? He should really wait until we install those steel (laughs) I-beams. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it's been a hell of a year in the environmental world, both good and bad, but mostly bad? Well, we'll see. 2021 did bring a wave of extreme weather disasters around the world, fueled by man-made climate change, caused primarily by using fossil fuels. Here in the U.S., extreme weather caused roughly $100 billion in losses and damages this year alone. Mm. From the deadly Texas freeze and blackout to deadly record shadows shattering heat waves, deadly devastating floods and storms, destructive wildfires, historic persistent drought, and tornadoes. It's now official. No December on record in the U.S. has ever seen as many tornadoes as 2021. Yeah, like I said, pretty bad year. NOAA climate scientist Stephanie Herring told the Washington Post, quote, the weather of the past will not be the weather of the future. As long as we are emitting greenhouse gases at an historically unprecedented rate, we should expect this change to continue. Like I said, not good. But there were also positive developments, like exponential growth in renewable energy deployment, the burgeoning youth climate movement, accelerating divestment from fossil fuels in the financial industry, the aggressive shift of major automakers to all electric vehicles and nations committing to boost their emissions cuts at the UN climate conference in Glasgow. Not that bad after all. But there is some not great news. Uh-oh. The International Energy Agency announced this week that worldwide demand for coal is likely to hit a new all-time high in the next 2 years due to a sharp rise in natural gas prices making coal more cost competitive and the rapid global economic recovery which has pushed up electricity demand much faster than renewable energy deployment can keep up. Also, Santa has to deliver a whole lot of coal this year to a whole lot of very bad boys down in Mar-a-Lago. The IEA also reports that sales of gas-guzzling SUVs have hit a new record, on track to be 45% of global car sales in 2021. If SUVs were an individual country, they would rank sixth in the world for absolute emissions in 2021. Really? However, the IEA found that skyrocketing electric car sales are offsetting much more CO2 than in the past. 2022 is going to be huge for electric vehicles. And even better news, the Wall Street Journal reports that companies have installed record amounts of big batteries on America's electric grid this year, thanks to government mandates and a steep decline in costs. So, for perspective, in 2020, the U.S. had less than one gigawatt of utility-scale battery storage. This year, the U.S. is on pace to add six gigawatts. Next year, the U.S. will add another nine gigawatts. Mm, Very cool. Still not fast enough. Also good news. Late last week, Vice President Kamala Harris unveiled the Biden-Harris Lead Pipe and Paint 
action plan to coordinate and significantly accelerate the removal of lead pipes and paint over the next 10 years. The EPA estimates up to 10 million lead pipes still carry water to homes and businesses around the nation, potentially leaching lead, a dangerous neurotoxin, into drinking water. With nearly $3 billion in funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law, Harris said the plan will also generate jobs. We are not only doing work that is good and important, we are also creating jobs. And we are creating good union jobs. Jobs that cannot be outsourced. And finally, a sign of the times. In the UK, oil giant Shell this week opened up its first electric vehicle charging hub, a complete fossil fuel to EV station conversion and upgrade where all of the pumps and tanks from the existing station were removed and completely replaced with EV charging infrastructure. Nice. Bring it on. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Icicles on each troughs and tinsel on the tree, but it's a green Christmas for me. And it's a hopefully green Christmas for us. Yes. Excellent year-ending report, Desi Doyen. We are off for the holiday. Uh, Nicole Sandler will be in for us next week. We will be back thereafter. My thanks, of course, to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, John Nichols of The Nation, and for all of you for spending a portion of your day or night or year with us. It is always greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other we've ever done, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And do please keep us in mind for your end of your giving at bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email while I'm gone. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. From Desi Doyen and me to all of you, we wish you all a safe, happy, and healthy holiday. We'll see you on the other side. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Stockings on the mantle. Snow's here every day, but it's a green Christmas anyway. Red nose on the reindeer, tinsel on the tree, but it's a green Christmas for me.